Friday, I'm going to be hosting a debate at TwimmelCon. It is the TwimmelCon off. <laughs> so it's the, uh, the ending of the TwimmelCon conference. And there's going to be some people from the community that are going to be joining in the debate. We're going to be talking about if a data scientist should know Kubernetes and if it's going to be one machine learning tool to rule them all, or if it's going to be best in class tools. And so uh, we will uh, have- I have really strong opinions on that, as you might imagine. <laughs> Wait, which one, the best in class or the one, one tool to rule them all? Oh, that whether a data scientist should not do Ah, uh, yeah, should they? No. No? No. Really? If, it did, if, if, I mean, and I'm speaking as, uh, a tool maker. Mm -hmm. uh, if a data scientist needs to know Kubernetes, uh, whoever has designed the tool or the framework has completely failed. Oh. Has completely failed. Right? Uh, Kubernetes is a way to build frame build frameworks. And as somebody who's basically you know writing the software for Kubeflow pipelines, or someone who's writing uh, a, you know, a training framework, or you know something like that, then you need to know Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. But as a data scientist, you should be able to you know, I think containers is the last level of abstraction that a data scientist should need to know about. Anything lower level than that is just ridiculous, right? You need to be able to say, here's my container, distribute it for me, scale it for me, give me resilience. Yeah, I could see it. Oh man, well, I'm, you're making it, you're going to give the people who are arguing for this or against this a run for their money. It's going to be difficult now. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's, that's great. So I completely agree on some of this, like the end user, your end user is going to be the data scientist. So if a data scientist does need to know Kubernetes, that is, it's just so much that you're asking them to know. Right. And I, mean, I, mean, I mean, this is like asking a web developer to know uh, how web servers work. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't. It should, right? It's I mean, not. Yeah, it's not realistic. Why we have the HTML and HTTP protocols? Yeah. Know how HTTP post works and how HTTP get works, and and trust that on the other side uh, that they can take care of uh, concurrent HTTP posts and they can take care of encryption and they can you know, uh, take care of key management. You, you and I shouldn't worry about that. We should mm. just be able to go write our web pages and, and go home and get, get a good night's sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and somebody's putting here in the chat too. It's like the idea of a full stack data scientist that sounds fun and it's a great like uh, theory, but... Mm -hmm. The majority of people, I think, it's very, very out of their range. It's very difficult to be uh, specialized in data science and staying up to date with everything. All these papers that are coming out every day in data science, like if you're looking to do anything with deep neural networks or any of that that you need to keep on top of. And then you're asking that person, oh, yeah, and by the way, like, just go figure out Kubernetes, which there's a whole nother job description for. 
Exactly. It, it's like expecting someone who writes code in Java to also know assembly yeah. and to also know how to solder circuits together. Yeah, yeah sure. It would be awesome if they could basically go write the uh, you know, optimized assembly code that so that they can drop down from their Java to, to, to assembler level for something. But it's not the right level of abstraction and uh, you know as people who create libraries and people who create frameworks uh, you know expecting your users to have that level of uh, knowledge and uh, you know means that the abstraction isn't good enough mm-hmm. you're not doing something right so that's Amazing. Well, that's one way to start a meetup. I love it, Lack. We've already gotten off of this. And now <laughs> just it's... jump in and say, even before hey, even before you have a, you have you ask me a question, I have a thought on that. Yeah, exactly. So those are the announcements and compliments of Lack. The uh, debate. Maybe I I got to get you to come to the debate too. We'll see. Are you busy this Friday? <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 let's talk about it. Yeah, I'm not sure about the time, but yeah, if I can, I would love it. Oh, that would be amazing. So <laughs> let's um let's talk about this book, man. Let's and but before we even do that, this <laughs> I see a hilarious uh, thing in the chat. And it's uh Medi's saying, Hey, can I give you some emails so you can explain all of what you said to th- these people I know? <laughs> It, it is recorded, isn't it? Exactly. Mehdi, we yeah. will let you know when this is on YouTube so that you can just send all of these people the emails and the timestamp and say, check this out. <laughs> so, Lack, man, I think it would be good if you can start by just telling us how you got into tech, how you even, like, what drove you down this path? Uh, what, it, I mean, uh, yeah. So, what drove me down this path is kind of kind of interesting, right? So I I did uh, research um, on uh, weather prediction. So basically, building uh, systems uh, that predict uh, severe weather, so tornadoes, uh, hail, lightning, flash floods, etc. So this was at the National Severe Storms Laboratory. And as you know, right, these days, if you're a scientist, you're a programmer. Right. The like where you know a hundred years ago, if you're a scientist, you learned how to use use a microscope, right? Uh, and you learned how to do experiments. The way you do experiments today as a scientist is that you write programs, right? You write simulation software. Totally. So the way I got into tech was that tech is a tool, and I think that's a perspective that is sometimes missing in the tech industry where we we sometimes build technology for technology's sake. But I approach technology as a tool to get me to do the thing I really want to do, which in that case was was the uh, understanding severe weather, understanding how to predict severe weather, understanding how to, or building systems and tools for making decisions based on severe weather. So for example, if you're if you're you know, flying an airplane, you need to know what height to fly the airplane at. Mm-hmm. If you have an airport, you know, if there's a lightning strike nearby, you need to know whether to stop uh, you know, flights uh, landing at that airport. Uh, or, you know, so, uh, or if you are an emergency manager and like, you know, and it, there's a tornado in, you know, uh, headed towards your town, you need to know should you sign should you do you know, should you uh, you know, sound the siren? Have people get into their tornado shelters? Okay, or if you're a 
<laughs> no, that's so that was basically the the end goal, the end result, and you will see this kind of that view, I think, in the in the book where every once in a while there will be like a, a weather scenario. I was gonna ask. That was exactly what I was gonna ask. I was like, wait a minute. So I think I just that you just gave a tell on which ones you wrote. Because there's like, oh, the airport uh, scenario or the if you're dealing with this, airlines need to know how they're doing it. So I guess those are yours. Not necessarily, not necessarily. Because I think, uh, again, you had Sarah on uh, a, a few weeks ago and uh, we discussed a lot of these things as we, uh, no, as we wrote the book. And in some cases, right, I would say, hey, no, Sarah, that's a great, here's a, here's a great example. Here's a great data set. So again, not giving things away, but there are some graphs in the book and there are some uh, uh, anecdotes in the book that where I may have basically pointed pointed other, other my, my colleagues, Mike and Sarah, at them, but they're <laughs> the ones who wrote it. Oh, that's incredible, man. So the first thing that I guess I want to ask before we even jump into the book is there is this paper that uh, my friend David and I have been absolutely loving we did like a four-part series on it it's the ml maturity level from google and i realized later on when i was reading the book i'm trying to find it right now but the same um maturity level is in the book and i'm wondering did you write that paper uh, I was one of the authors of that paper. Oh, so, so that was a group effort, and there was about seven or eight of us. I did a very minimal, right? So there's a whole bunch of my colleagues uh, that that did it. So basically, if you look on cloud.google.com slash solutions, uh-huh. that is a set of solutions that comes out of our team. Uh, and uh, no, so those are not signed. Yeah, uh, because those are by by all of them. So it's by Google Cloud. But yes, this uh, cloud AI adoption model and the maturity curve model and all of that is based on uh, a lot of the work that we have done with customers in terms of understanding where they are and and what like like, like how they move up the maturity model and what kinds of things they need to invest in, because it's also the case. I think this this ties back to our first conversation where we talked about uh, what kind of infrastructure do you need and not everyone is has the uh, has the need for the most complex infrastructure involving feature stores and and their own kubernetes clusters in a lot of cases um, a, a managed service for prediction uh, and uh, and your standard python development environment is enough mm-hmm. right and we don't actually we don't actually need a full-fledged experimentation framework because it may you know at the early stage of 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 maturity for a lot of companies you're not actually developing very bespoke ml models you're often taking a model out of tensorflow hub or you are doing transfer learning and at that point the amount of uh, amount of infrastructure that you need and the amount of uh, recording that you need might be somewhat minimal. I mean, again, we suggest that you don't stop there, you move up to the next level of maturity. But the, I, but what we always suggest is get going uh-huh. rather than spend a lot of time building infrastructure that you may or may not need. Yes, yes. And that's such a great point because that's something that we talked about a lot when we were going over this paper and it was very much like, hey, yeah, this is 
the these are the levels, the maturity levels, but don't feel like you need to be at level two right away, especially. Like, and maybe sometimes level zero is good enough for your use case. And that's a huge, right. huge thing. And so that's actually one of the questions that I wanted to get into because in the, uh, I think it is in the feature store chapter of the book or the design pattern, you talk about how it's a bit more of a bloated solution, right? And there's mm -hmm. a trade-off that happens there. So I'm wondering, like, how do you know or when do you get to this, like, point where you say, okay, we're going to add this complexity for the ease of use. How do you know mm -hmm. when that point is, right? To bring on complexity uh, for the sake of making things a little bit easier. Absolutely. So again, uh, when you think about the feature store, it's about being able to foster reuse within your organization. Reuse of what? Reuse of calculations on your input data, right? And what that means is that you need to have this kind of model of your data that is used in multiple models. So Feature Store, for example, the customer that we worked with the Feature Store on was Gojek. And they were building, and Gojek is this Indonesian firm that delivers food, and they do a whole bunch of other things. Okay, But a key part of their, many of their machine learning models was a concept of a driver. Right of, of someone who's driving. And that, so the idea was that once you have all of the information about a driver pulled in, it would be great if every one of the other models could simply say, here's my driver ID, give me an embedding of a driver, which captures all the information that they know about this driver, their history, their preferences, like how long they take to deliver, all of those kinds of things and you want to pull it all in one sense. And then you basically have somebody upstream, right? That's basically creating this driver feature. So the way that you think about it is very similar to the way you think about it in software. Should I make this a library or should I just write it as uh, a code right in my function? And it comes down to how often are you going to be reusing it, right? So as we know, when we do software, we basically have things that are simply, you write the code yourself, things where you basically have a library and you call it, and then you have the third level where you basically wrap it up in a microservice and you basically call it by an API. A feature store is a microservice level. It's not for everything that you need that microservice level. For many things, having it as a library is good enough. And the, and the idea of having it as a library is that you basically have uh, you know, you, you, you know a, a pipeline that creates these things, and you're just pulling pulling them as part of your, uh, you know, or, or part of the experiment framework for multiple ML models. You don't need this uh, idea of this always up to date driver information. That's the that's the level at which you need the feature mm. store. Mm. Yeah, that's great, and. Now it totally makes sense because you were talking with Gojek and shout out to Willem and the uh, the Feast team. I noticed that you put a little blurb about Feast and how that works in the in the book. So that's very cool. And now I totally understand where that came from and, and how that all connects. So the next thing I'm wondering then is for you, like I'm sure you've heard this 
being thrown around. And it is the idea of best practices being encoded into tooling where like <laughs> a if you use a tool, it ensures that you're going to be following the best practices, right? Mm-hmm. You've probably heard that argument. And so I'm wondering what are some of the best practices that you've seen being used in tooling? And is it something that we could say like, okay, it's some of these design patterns that you speak about are just being wrapped up into a tool and so that it ensures you're using some design patterns and that those are the the best practices at the moment? Uh, uh, yeah, and if you, uh, that, is, that is absolutely true. And some of these are tools, some of these are libraries, and some, some of these are services. Coming back to that old discussion we had in the feature store, there's multiple ways to reuse them. And you find them being used in, so for example, when you talk about uh, an embedding, uh, TensorFlow has a method called make me an embedding column, right? So that you can basically take your standard structured one hot encoded field and run it through an embedding. You don't actually have to create an, uh, a dense layer and, and remember how to do that. You just, you just use the function, give me an embedding column, and uh, it's part of your training network. And so that is one way in which tools start to support this really common concept that when I'm, when I'm training sparse models, which is very common in structured data, I will often want to not use the sparse column directly, but I want to wrap it up in an embedding column. And the TensorFlow framework makes that uh, easy, right? So the, that's one way in which we do, we, we see that best practice basically gets incorporated into the tooling. You have to know why you're doing it mm-hmm. and why it is that no, you're, you're, you're wrapping it up and remember that this is about dimensionality reduction. And so remember to not just do it for absolutely every one hot encoded column you have, because if you do that, then you're basically losing a bunch of the actual information encoded uh, in the one hot encoded column. So you've got to think about is the closeness relationship important to me? And that's where the design pattern comes in for you to understand the purpose of the embedding and whether that purpose, that closeness relationship makes sense in the context of this one hot encoded column that you have. Mm. So that's one way in which we do the reuse. On the other end, you say, okay, we want to have serverless predictions that are stateless. And yeah, we can go do that ourselves, but it's much easier if you have a managed service where to which you can go say, here's my, here's my model artifacts. Please go ahead and run them very efficiently for me, auto-scale it for me, and then you basically have your prediction infrastructure that is an, is, is an, it, it's a way to uh, get this extremely uh, you know, uh, effective way to get your stateless uh, serving uh, design pattern in there. So you, you have tooling that supports it at the, uh, at the microservice level uh, as well. Right? And then you have, you have best practices that are in between. Mm. Uh, so so you, you, you may have things that are, are, are available where you can basically turn them on or off, like distributed, distributed strategy. Uh, it's going to be different, different ways. And you kind of decide, okay, my model is very big and it's, I have to split it across multiple nodes or my model is small enough that I can mirror it. 
And depending on that, you choose your distribution strategy. So that's somewhere in the middle where you basically, you, you have a choice of how you want to do the distribution, but all the hard work is handled for you by the tool. Well, and I guess that is a perfect segue into this idea that I've, I've been grappling with and that there's so many different use cases for machine learning, right? And to try and tackle all of them and put them into different patterns, how did you even come up with, how did you even start to try that? And how, how was it that you were like, okay, this is something that we keep seeing, so we should write about it. Is it just that you continued having the same conversations and you're going around in circles? I know you're also a prolific blog writer, so maybe it's like it's a bunch of little blog posts that you had and that you had been seeing, and then you said, well, hey, let's let's put this into a book. How did that happen? And like, how did you even think, uh, I want to say, like the audacity to think like, hey, <laughs> let's go and write some patterns that we can, right. we can so, use so, so. in this gigantic field that has so many different use cases? Right. So, so I, I think those are three separate questions. So let me take them one at a time. Okay. So the first one, like how did we kind of decide that these are the patterns that we need to be, uh, we need to include in the book. Okay. The way that we essentially did that is that I think we're all three of us are very fortunate, Sarah, Michael, and myself, we're all very fortunate in that we, we work with lots of customers. Right? So Michael teaches at what we call our ML immersion program. And that involves uh, companies sending five of their engineers to Google uh, and they spend uh, uh, you know, 18 weeks with us, right? So uh, you know, all, you know, sev several months, like, like, you know, so we work alongside them on a really challenging problem that that company has to solve. And then we kind of do touch-ins with them over a period of a few months. And so, so, so Michael has worked with a number of these uh, of, 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 of Google Club customers in helping them build their models and very familiar with the challenges when they first come into our program and, uh, no, and like that you know, as we discover the problems, as we go build the, build the solutions, as we discover the problems with their data sets and everybody has problems with their data sets, right? And then we say, okay, now how did you resolve it and helping so them true. through that process and we see yes, the similar problems you know, occurring, whether the company is uh, basically you know, in retail or in finance or they're in, 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 in conservation, right? So they all have uh, things that are kind of somewhat similar and we're able to kind of like, that, that's one way in which uh, you know, we, we discover it. We also discover it because we, we talk to developers and we basically see that, okay, here, here's the kinds of things that developers do a lot. We work with a number of internal Google teams who are uh, saying like, here, here's, some, here, here's how we organize our projects and here's how we've done uh, you know, this particular ML model that goes into Google Meet, or this is this ML models that go into Google Photos and this is how we productionized it. And we say, oh my God, that is a really neat idea, right? And we say, okay, who else uses it? And why, why isn't it getting used? in other places and part that's part of what google cloud does is in many cases we look at uh, neat things that are being done because again google has we've been operationalizing ml models for a long time and looking at how to externalize some of that as google cloud services 
So, and that's something that uh, no, I'm, I'm uh, familiar with because we basically be working with a number of Google teams. So these patterns come from both uh, cool new technologies that have been done at the bleeding edge, right? Common customer problems because customers are facing them, common developer problems that uh, you know, developers are seeing. And that's where the three of us meshed in really well because we see you know, you know, things from three different perspectives and we're able to put them together and say, here are the things that, uh, you know, here, here's a box and we kind of shook them a little bit and said, okay, these are the ones that are kind of common and let's go talk about it. So that's the first bit. The second thing is how do I, why did I get the audacity to think that this is something that is worth doing? And as, as you, and you put your finger on it, it was just that I, I write a bunch of blog posts and, uh, you know, I had basically was, I was giving a talk at a Google developer event. And uh, that was when the Keras feature column uh, capability was being developed. So I was working with the Keras team on uh, the usability of that interface. And, uh, and I was trying it out on different models and, and so on. So that was a, obviously, you know, that was top of mind for me. So when the GDE event said, hey, come, can you come talk? I basically when I talked about the feature column, but I, just before before I talked about the API, I thought it'll be good to talk about why this API is important. So I talked about uh, the need to save transformations between training and prediction, mm. and then I said, no, this this idea of explaining why you need to have this API capability is an important thing because otherwise these APIs look unnecessarily complex and people are yeah. like, why am I even using this stuff? Why can't I just roll it off myself? We need to explain right, the reason for them. And that's, you know, that explanation itself, people found extremely useful. I got a lot of conversations after the talk and everybody was like, that, you know, that explanation that you gave about the transform is very useful. Uh, what other things are there? And that was the thing that prompted me. What other things are there? I said, okay, let me go ahead. And so I wrote about five, blog posts on these, like, you know, why do we do checkpointing? Why do we do transforms, etc.? cetera? Uh, and then I basically did talks on these. And based on that is how uh, realized that there was a need to explain these concepts and these, uh, you know, these patterns. And that was basically the genesis of the book. And then I basically, you know, you know looped in Mike and Sarah and we basically, you know, you know built up the book. The rest is history. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. It makes total sense of the why. And also, again, mm -hmm. what you said there, you just dropped in a little breadcrumb to the last question of when you tell someone the why the API way why the API is like it is and then they don't have that idea of, oh, I could just go do this myself, but maybe they go and do it themselves and they don't have the fundamentals there. So it ends up being much more of a headache. It ends up not moment. solving the problem yeah. that the API is trying is, is solving. Yeah, completely. You know, so, so again, but, but, but not all things are that way. Like I said, some of these patterns are driven by here's how it's being done in the API, or this is how leading edge ML teams are solving this problem that they're encountered which you may not realize you're going to encounter until you actually encounter it. So it's nice to build off of the experience of, of other teams that have already been there. And, and, and <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of funny that you say that because uh, we just did a 
a podcast with um, with Charlie Yu, who is a machine learning engineer at Workday, and he said mm -hmm. that reading this book. It was one of those moments where he read it and he was like, oh, that's interesting. But then he went back to work like a week later and he encountered the problem and he said, this is from that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like one of these things, right? So if the first time you basically, someone points out a bird to you and you, you've never even noticed a bird before, but someone says, hey, that is a warbler. And then for the next week, you just see warblers everywhere because suddenly you've been, uh, you're, 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 someone has shown it to you and you kind of now, now you recognize that it's there and you've been missing them. And exactly. part of this is that, uh, yeah, so now that you've recognized it, it's not only that there, there's so many trade-offs and aspects to it, and it's, in, and it's very likely that uh, you've, you've, you've thought about some of them, but you've not thought, thought about others. And that's part of what uh, is, is, I think, useful about a design patterns book. I read the Gang of Four book when it came out, and I'm dating myself, right? So it came out in 95, 96, something like that. And it was a, it was a, I, I can look at the code that I wrote before and after mm -hmm. uh, I read the Gang of Four book, and there's a huge difference in terms of how reusable it is and uh, how uh, you know uh, 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 how repeatable and maintainable it is, of course, I as with as with everybody who read the Ganga Four book, I went overboard. I put in the visitor pattern everywhere, and then like you know a few years later, I realized, oh my God, I shouldn't have gone that far. And that's kind of the why, right? On the feature store, we made it very clear: please don't use it unless you have to. To me, the feature store in the the, the in the ML design patterns book is exactly like the visitor pattern in the Gang of Four book. It is a thing that is completely will save your bacon when you're building a really huge ML system, but most smaller ML systems don't need it. Mm, that's such a good point. And, you know, I think uh, either you're going to write it or maybe I'll write something that is the, the 12 steps of being a machine learning engineer anonymous or something where the first step is is actually recognition of when you're doing it and then the next step is acceptance and <laughs> you go through these steps because like you said you just have to realize that it's there first and then you mm -hmm. can start seeing oh, okay yeah maybe we'll maybe i can change this and then not going overboard is key and crucial so there's some great questions coming through in the chat and I want to uh, want to be respectful for everyone that is here and throwing these amazing questions in the chat. The first one that I wanted to mention, which is, it goes along with a question of mine. So it's a little bit mine and the chat. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's not raining there. That's surprising. So... All right. Yeah, it's exciting go. to have sun. But. <laughs> yeah. So the the question goes along with something that we tried to do in some of the first meetups. And it was along the lines of like the MLOps hierarchy of needs. And we had a great guest on here, Phil Winder, who's done a lot of stuff with Kubeflow. Maybe you actually know him, but he was talking about what his hierarchy of needs in MLOps is. And then this question just came through the chat of like, what 
would be in your mind some of the hierarchy of needs or hierarchy of design patterns and mm -hmm. how you feel because i imagine that all of them are in here for a reason but mm -hmm. like you said a feature store has a very specific use case and mm -hmm. serving models has a totally different one right so there's in my mind i see there's a bit of a hierarchy but i'd love to hear from you okay uh I don't see them as a hierarchy. I see them as more of a handoff, right? So when you're in this process of developing uh, ML models, your core need is the ability to uh, represent your data effectively, right? The, uh, you know, the most valuable thing in machine learning is data. And you want to make sure that you're using it effectively. And using data effectively means that you have to trade off two things. You have to trade off, the, like, the less data you use, the more uh, you can be sure about its quality. Right? And the more data you bring in, the more likely it is that you have to basically treat quality in a more statistical way. Right? You're, not, you're not absolutely sure about every single bit of data that you're using to train your system. You have to basically look at quality in a more statistical way, which essentially means that uh, as the size of your data increases, the way in which you, 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 know, you go from treating data as a pet to treating data as a cattle, coming back to the old the, the old Kubernetes uh, yeah. uh, analogy there, right? And as you start treating data as a cattle, which is what we do in machine learning, you've got to basically build up the tooling to be able to deal with data as a cattle while not losing that quality focus. So from a developer standpoint, the first and most important thing is that that hierarchy of needs that's going to grow as the size of your data increases, the way that you prepare your data, the way you clean your data, the way you analyze your data for data drift, all of that is going to become more and more sophisticated as you, you, as, as you go up. Right? The second thing is once you have your data, you also will have to incorporate it into your model. And when you incorporate it into your model, it's the exact same thing. Right? You will initially, you might basically treat your data and you might do feature engineering to basically improve all of the, the ways in which you represent the data and the quality. But as the, as the variety of data increases, you want to basically look at how can I automatically start identifying features? Mm -hmm. And that's where things like feature crosses and embeddings come in, which is like, there are two, two sides of this problem, a feature cross is basically automatically doing feature engineering, understanding that combinations of features are important and embeddings are ways of automatically doing dimensionality reduction, understanding that your, your data, that, that huge variety is, looks very appealing initially, but it is actually not representative of the information content of your data, right? So that's the second level at which as a, as, a, as a developer, the way you think about it, okay? And then the third thing is once you start developing your ML models, now you basically start thinking about uh, how do I compare two models? How do I compare experimentation? How do I deal with imbalance, right? So, so many of the patterns in this book are about improving the 
improving the quality of your models, sometimes by forcing you to think about them differently. Is something a, a regression problem just because you're predicting a number? No. In many cases, if you bucketize the number and you change it to a classification problem, you will get amazingly better performance mm -hmm. because you can have probability bins on each of your buckets. So those are all the kinds of ways in which you improve your ability to deal with different kinds of problems as the developer of ML models. And then you basically take that hat off, you put a new hat on. Okay, I've developed my ML model, now I want to deploy the ML model. What are some of the problems that I'm going to face when I'm deploying ML models? Sometimes the problem that you face is that you want to basically handle millions of users simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a problem that you face is that you have millions of instances that you need to predict as quickly as possible. So the scaling is different and how you deal with them is different. So those are the deployment issues. And then we basically move on to the next step, which is, okay, now you've deployed your model. Now, how do you basically satisfy your stakeholders' explainability? How do you satisfy uh, uh, things about reuse and maintainability? And that's where the ML engineering bit comes in, where you, you, know, you don't think about every ML model as its own uh, thing by itself, but as this group of things that you're asking users to take advantage of when they make decisions hmm. and how do you support the decision-making of users? So it's really not, you no, know, you don't want to think about it as one group of things, but it's things that you use at different stages of an ML lifecycle. Yeah. And not one is better than the other. It's more what is happening and what are your needs right now? And I like mm -hmm. this analogy, like, okay, what hat are you wearing, right? And then if you've gotten to this stage, then you probably can be looking at these things as opposed right. to, oh, this is the most important one. And then you go down and find the ones that are less important, but you still should be aware of. So, uh, yeah, great answer, man. I really, I really like that one. Now, the next question we've got in the chat is from Ron, and this is a really good one too. It's a little bit wordy, but the gist of it is, are there patterns out there that are yet to be discovered? And so the back story of this is, uh, how do you balance the exploitable versus explorable ML patterns? And the known design patterns in your book are now certainly exploitable. Yet so much of what we do is exploring new space. So are there patterns out there still yet to be discovered? Okay. First of all, there are patterns out there that we did not include in the book right? because we did not see enough reuse of them. Okay, so, but as, as technology improves, as more people do ML, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be more and more of these things that become more reusable. So as an example of one that we did not include, right, uh, because I'm sure everybody's like, what, 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 which one did you include? Uh, there is this, if you look, uh, you can do a Google search for this. There is a project called MediaPipe. And MediaPipe is a way to do ML pipelines for when you're building mobile applications. 
and very specifically about doing mobile applications for things like object detection, et cetera. And it turns out that when you build those applications, it's not one ML model, but dozens of ML models that you need to link up together. So in, in, and it's for a very, 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 very specific task. And this, and, and there's a lot of very interesting ideas in when you will want to build a solution like MediaPipe versus using a more general purpose solution like Kubeflow pipelines. And when you will want to basically, or, or a more, uh, you know, or, or, or a lower level solution like Cascade, right? So Cascade and ML pi like pipelines are the two closest ones to what we cover in the cover here, but MediaPipe is fundamentally different. But MediaPipe is the only one that we saw. And one of our things was we want this to be repeatable. And we did not see a second, second similar use case of something like a media pipe. So we couldn't come up with a, with a general purpose name of it. We couldn't just say, hey, look, media pipe does something cool and interesting, right? So to me, a pattern is something that is applicable in multiple contexts, in multiple industries, in multiple, whether it's NLP or it's images or it's something else, right? So it's that, it's that idea of that uh, it's the same idea that you can implement in multiple ways and it's a, it's, it's a best practice. Uh, so uh, that I think gets at what, what, what is being asked, right? Whether it is exploitable or is it something that you're exploring? Uh, if, if it gets to the point where it's exploitable, it's something that is repeated and you do it over and over again and you can do it in multiple contexts, then it becomes a pattern. And this is of course like, uh, you know, everyone is smart and we all keep discovering new things and there's gonna be new ones that come out. Uh, and some of these things that we're, we're developing might become obsolete and we may say, we don't wanna do those things anymore. And if that's the case, we, we should be like, you know, yeah, we should go back and revisit some of these things. Absolutely. Mm, very nice. Okay, I see that. I, I can see that very clearly it's like if it's such a specific use case even if it is really really cool you can't call it a pattern yet so Correct. that's uh that's awesome now let's let's take another question from the chat there is a question wondering about the differences in your mind of model ops versus the term ml ops Model ops versus ML ops. Model ops seems to think that the most important thing about, about machine learning is the model. I think with ML ops, you're leaving open the possibility that you need to basically improve the speed at which you deliver data, which can often be the fundamental, fundamental blocking thing. Right? between uh, having something that works really well and something that doesn't work as well. So I like this idea of ML ops because it forces someone to think a bit more holistically than thinking of it as model ops, which would be all about, let me improve the ML model and not worry too much about all of that, about the ecosystem that it lives in. Mm. That, that would be my take. Awesome. So next one up is, do you feel that a DevOps engineer is better suited to make the transition into becoming a machine learning engineer? Hmm. Who's best suited to becoming an ML engineer, right? Uh, 
I've seen really good SREs become extremely good ML engineers. I've seen very good data engineers become ML engineers. Uh, what I haven't seen are data scientists becoming ML engineers. At least the ones that I know that have done this have quickly gone back to being data scientists. <laughs> they did not like being an ML engineer. Right? Oh man! So I think uh, you know uh, anybody who's basically used to building backend systems, you might basically say, "I'll pick up the ops capabilities of this." Or someone who does ops says, "I'll pick up the statistical possibilities of this." But someone who's like a data scientist typically is interested in solving new problems and they find it very, very difficult to focus on the detail and the quality that's needed for to be successful in the ML engineer role. <laughs> that's it just makes me laugh because the idea of the data scientist that tries to then become the machine learning engineer, they've they're the ones who have the hardest time. And I could see that because it's not, you're not very familiar with so much that is wrapped up in this machine learning engineer uh, title. But then again, also, I think what is very difficult right now in the age that we are living in is that a machine learning engineer to one company has a totally different role than a machine learning engineer at another company. And your expectations at one company as a machine learning engineer is a completely different set of standards than at another company, whether that's an uh, enterprise or a startup. There's many different factors at play there. So <laughs> I'm... Um, I'm thinking there's there's another great question in here that I wanted to talk with you about, and it was on the idea of um, the okay. So Todd Underwood, who I mentioned before, was uh, mm -hmm. on here, and he's a fellow colleague of yours at Google, and he was talking about he actually did a uh, a talk on machine learning problems that they encountered and how so many of them were just problems with distributed systems and it wasn't machine learning specific mm -hmm. problems. And so I think Correct. there is, so there's this question that is talking, asking like, would like to know what LAC sees as the fundamental difference between a machine learning design pattern as opposed to a software development design pattern. And it's actually mm -hmm. funny just to a little bit more of a tangent before I let you talk is that we had Manoj on here from Salesforce last week. And a lot of what he was saying was echoing this is that a lot of these problems are software engineering problems and they aren't so specific to machine learning. But I think that mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your take. Right. Uh, so these are definitely software engineering problems, but you don't have to solve them using just the standard software engineering solutions. Uh, with ML, you basically know the specific domain in which they happen, and therefore you basically can uh, have a somewhat more of a custom solution that takes into account the special context in which the software engineering problem occurs. So if the problem is of maintainability, that's a software engineering problem, but ML poses uh, another uh, uh, another constraint 
in that the maintainability has to has to cover both the maintainability of the data which can change and the code which can change and you need to basically make sure that your data and your code are in sync and that poses a higher level of maintainability concerns and that's why you talk about data versioning and model versioning and how to basically keep those and that's uh, so, so, so that's essentially what we're talking about here: is that the problems may not be new, but uh, sometimes the problems are wider in scope, and the solutions themselves, uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can go look at what what has been done in the software engineering world and use those same tools. We're not talking about basically building. You now, versioning is something that's very well known in software engineering, but isn't quite well practiced when it comes to data science, but it's something that we have to bring that discipline of, of version control into data science. And that's basically what we're talking about here. What, is, what are the things that we need to version control? We need to version control the data, we need to version control the artifacts that come out of the data and we need to make sure that all three of them are, are interlinked so that the metadata captures all of those. Exactly, and even the idea of the CICD, it's that same mm -hmm. kind of thing. And the paper you wrote or the paper that you all wrote uh, about the continuous training is very mm -hmm. much to that idea. Like, hey, let's take these best practices from software which have been proven and then let's mm -hmm. add on top of them so you're standing on the shoulder of giants and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So the, there's another great question in here. And thank you all who are in here for asking questions because you all are amazing. You're making my job easier. Not that it would have been difficult to talk with Lack. I see we're kind of coming down to the wire, but there are some incredible questions. So let's get to it. The When you were working with the companies at Google, so uh, this is, I think, referring to the story you told. In the ML version program. Yeah. Correct. And did yeah. you give them a tool chain and a better infrastructure or was there more to it? Did they have to rethink their cor corporate culture? Uh, I ask this because DevOps is of, often mistaken as just pure tool chain. Right. So oftentimes uh, when a company sends their folks to us, for the ML inversion program, it is part of a larger digital transformation that's being carried on at the company. So, yeah, so the, the person asking the question is absolutely right. Uh, we like you no, know, our small team didn't actually do the didn't work with the company on doing the overall transformation, but overall there were transformation workshops happening. We actually did uh, you know, discovery workshops with the product managers to identify. Uh, situations in which they could take advantage of data analytics and AI. Not everything needs to be machine learning, right? Lots of things, uh, simple visibility into data can be enough. So we'd actually think about where do we add visibility into the data that, that's coming in, visibility into business processes, uh, visibility into how decisions are made, how to basically they transform them. For example, oh, like one of the companies is basically uh, a retailer and the transformation for them was how to basically speed up inventory management, be able to support things like curbside delivery and so on. So that was the overall umbrella program of digital transformation that involved a huge culture change at the company. And in that, they, were, they wanted to basically have 
uh, their core data science teams also up-leveled. And in order to do that, they basically said, okay, take, take this group of folks and we will basically put them through an immersion program at Google. So that's basically what it was. And again, yeah, you can look this up. It's called the Advanced Solution Lab. So just go ahead and Google Advanced Solution Lab and Google Cloud, and you should you'll find more details about this program. It's basically just giving superpowers to your machine learning and data science team, I imagine. So Sam Absolutely. is asking a question in here about us being, are we not being too protective of the data scientist as a role? Very rarely do we have a team that is big enough to allow dedicated roles. How do we encourage data scientists to look at the wider picture and get involved in the earlier roles like data engineering? Right. So, 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 so I know we don't have much time, but my core uh, advice to a lot of companies is that you're you want to hire a software engineer who can pick up enough of the data science to basically be successful. And the, it's only the, the larger you are that you can afford to have these research-oriented data science roles. And that's a, that's a good way, I think, to think about it, is that if, you have a, if you're hiring data scientists in your company, you're hiring them because you want them to be able to do uh, exploratory, ambiguous, uh, destination unknown kind of work. If it is very much around, here's a problem I want you to solve, you are better off hiring uh, a software engineer who, who knows enough about machine learning and data science than hiring uh, no, a, 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 someone with academic training uh, in, in like, like some of the PhD in computer science, for example. Right? Uh, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a misfit if you want them to do more than that research and exploratory work. Mm, yeah, and I've heard that echoed so many different times and it ends up just making the company not appreciate the data scientists when you hire them because- The company doesn't appreciate the data scientists. The data scientist is very unhappy in their yeah. role because they're doing very operational kinds of things. It's, it's, a, fun, no, it's a mismatch between the, the, uh, the aspirations of somebody who wants to be a data scientist and the needs of a small company that needs to productionize their ML models, that needs to build a lot of ML models quickly and put them out there in production. Right? This is a fundamental mismatch and it does not, does not bode well for either party if, if they do that, right? So, uh, no, so that, that I think is another way of answering that question of should, shouldn't the data scientist pick up uh, like ops and shouldn't they pick up much better software engineering skills? Yeah, they should, but are they going to be happy doing it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not what their, their strong suit is. So Lack, do you have a hard stop right now? Or can I ask you one more I question? Do, do. Uh, okay. Well, let's do one more question. I'll just <laughs> tell, tell the party. I'm keeping, I'm keeping you on here. I got you. <laughs> I don't want to okay. let you go. So you're right. another colleague of yours. Yvonne was asking us, what is the plan around MLOps for Google and the Google MLOps vision? Uh, that is a much larger question than, than, we can, than we can do here. But no, we have a cloud AI platform and we are continually uh, you know, enhancing it to support the needs of customers of 
various sizes and various levels of sophistication. So that you know, in some ways that cloud AI adoption journey, you can think of that as the way that we're thinking about where the market is. And we want, and you basically have on one side, what a, what a company wants to achieve with machine learning. Uh, do they want to do strategic things? Do they want to do transformational things? Uh, do they want to do tactical things? And then on the other side is the, the amount of workforce and who it is that works on ML at these companies. So now you have a three by three matrix and we want to basically have the tooling that is very, uh, that works well together, that's well integrated, that works for all of these, all of these users. Lack, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to throw the Slack invite link in the chat one more time. If anyone wants to jump in, we are having all kinds of MLOps conversations there. And we're going to be giving out three of these books that Lack co-authored, amazing books. I just really appreciate you diving into all of this with us, Lack. Thank you so much. You're, you're welcome, Demetrius. Thank you. See y'all.